Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. 1 Samuel chapter 9 tonight. If you have your Bible, please open it to 1 Samuel 9. If you need a Bible, you can get the attention of one of the ushers and they will uh, pass one off to you so that you can follow along with us in our study. And I'm looking at the clock, and I'm asking for the clock, and I'm going to pray, and we're going to get into the Word, and um, the Lord has a Word for us tonight. <clears throat> and so, Lord, we just come to you, and we, we thank you, Father, for uh, your, your ways. We thank you for your kingdom. We thank you for your truth and uh, for your love in our lives. And we just pray now, Lord, as we turn our attention to the eternal Word, that you would speak to us from heaven. Our hearts are open, Lord. Our spirits are willing. And we want to receive, Lord, your strength. We want to receive your filling. We want to receive your instruction tonight. And we want to receive your conviction, Lord. We ask that we wouldn't leave here tonight the same as the way we came in. So please, Lord, use your word. Thank you for its power in our lives. And so we yield ourselves to you now. Lord, would you speak from heaven? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. At the age of 19, uh, I gave my life to Jesus um, after a, a long battle of resisting. And, you know, you guys know it. If you're saved, you went through that same battle. And I did not have, as you hear from some, of a dramatic conversion experience. You know, for some people, you hear their story and it almost sounds like Jesus came and hit him with a taser. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and that, that, that all these lights went off and things happened. And it wasn't really like that for me. It was just kind of like I, I opened my heart to God and I asked him to come inside. And, and, and it, I didn't really feel anything, like really emotionally. But there were, in the very early days of my walk with him, a series of uh, things that he did. They were subtle things, but they were very clearly from him. And I remember one night in particular, I was in my college dorm room. Um, it was just after a couple of months, and I was so hungry for the word. And that was something that definitely marked my, my uh, conversion, as I couldn't get enough of the Bible, whether it was reading it, listening to messages, being in church and church services. I just needed God's word. It was, so, it was like, like power to me to just read his word. And so I was learning a lot. I was soaking in, in truth and processing everything. I was kind of um, figuring it all out. And I remember one night just laying in my college dorm Bed, bed, and my roommate was gone for the weekend. It was like 11 p.m., the lights were off, and I was just awake laying there and processing, processing, just thinking. And, and I remember, um, you know, after a progression of thought, just coming to a point in silence that then I spoke and whispered, just whispered the words, and I just said, I trust you. And when I said those words, just that those three words came out of my mouth, what happened, it wasn't like, who the taser came. It wasn't like that. But, but here's what did happen, is that it felt physically like there was a big suitcase on the bed. And somebody lifted the suitcase off the bed, and the springs of the bed just kind of like gave, gave a little. That's, that, that, like I felt it. It was physical. Like I felt the bed springs just like, like a burden, like something was just taken off of the bed. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> you know, cause I, cause that was real and I felt it, but, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't goosebumps or anything like that. But I'll never forget that moment of just whispering to God and saying to him those words, I trust you. Now I had no idea what saying those words was about to do or begin in my life. Because for the next 15 years after saying those words, 
my life did not feel stable, okay? It felt a whole lot like last night's presidential debate. <laughs> it left me with a lot more questions than answers. It left me asking often, how did I get here? Where are we going? What's going on? You know, uh, is this real? And, and that was really life for me for 15 years, probably more. Uh, you know, I've been walking with them over 20 now, and I'm not sure it's totally done yet, you know. But that's kind of what life is like when you say to God that you trust him. Because God has ways that are different than our ways. He does things in different ways than we do things. I remember um, at a moment, and this is probably going back about 10 years now, it was a very dark time. It was extremely dismal. And I was doubting God. I was regretting, and in all honesty, I was regretting uttering those words, thinking that God had led me astray, thinking that I, you know, just all kinds of things were going on. It was, as happens to Christians, it was a dark time. And I remember sending my wife a text message from a dark place, physically, literally, uh, and spiritually. And I, I just texted her these words. You'll see the text go up on the screen. The text was, um, do you think that the, the last two years of Joseph's imprisonment was punishment for asking help from the butler? You know, and if you know the story, you know, Joseph asked for help. He said, hey, help me, get me out of here. Talk to the king for me. And then, and then he sat and rotted there for two more years. And so I'm like analyzing, like, where did I go wrong? What were my errors? Why is God punishing me? I'm going through all this stuff. And I sent her this text message. I just said, you know, is this what's happening? And then she replied, it's kind of a small screen, but, but this was her reply. She said to me, she said, no. She said, I don't think it was discipline. She said, I think that God was setting things up. Actually, how, how does it say it? I can't see. I wish I, 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 I want to see what you see because then it would help me because I, you know, whatever. But he, she said this. She said, no, I think it was part of the process while God was setting everything up. And all that was in caps. And then she said this. I didn't mean to capitalize that last part, but I'll leave it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, 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 and I held on to that, you know, that grabbed a hold of me that, that God was just setting all things up. And it's true. Those were challenging times. There was a lot of challenging years saying to God that I trust you and then letting him direct and lead the course. And I believe that one of the most challenging things that a child of God has to go through, I didn't say hard because it's not hard. It's actually simple, but it's challenging. And that is figuring out why you're here and where you're going. Now, I'm not talking about the heaven part. You know, that part we know. I'm talking about the earth part. Why are we here and where are we going? Why did God make you? What is, and I hate this word because it's been churched, but what is your purpose? What is your reason? Why did God knit you together in your mother's womb and put you in the world in this time with your distinct personality and set of gifts and strengths, why did that happen? And that is something that only God can reveal to you and how in the world are you going to get there from where you are now? And that is an extremely challenging thing in this life to figure out. And here's why. Because God's way of showing us those things is contrary to our nature, our nature that likes to plan. It's contrary to our culture that has an expectation of how things are supposed to go. And it's contrary to our preference, which is I want it now. 
<laughs> you know? So God's way is very contrary to our way and the way that we do things. He doesn't do things the way that we do things. Now, God in the Bible likens himself and his ways to three roles, and there's more, but there's three distinct ones that stand out to me in this context. Number one is that God calls himself a gardener. In some places, God also calls himself a builder. And in other places, God calls himself or likens himself unto a coach. Uh, it kind of does that vicariously through Paul, but nevertheless, uh, it is the Lord who is the coach. Now, all three of those roles and process ways, if you would, all of those things require planning, a process, time, flexibility, and adaptability. Because those things involve a process that doesn't happen all at once. Now, I personally wish that God would liken himself to those that work the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A, that, that they just get you in and get you through. We're going to get you, get you your purpose. We're going to fill this order quick. It doesn't seem like it's going to be quick, but it's going to happen right now, but he doesn't do that, okay? Now, you say, well, what is God planting? What is God building? What is God preparing? And here's what it is. He's preparing for you and I that we might know our reason why it is that we exist. Also, that we might discover our abilities or be given our abilities that God wants to give to us in order to fulfill his will for our lives and also to bring us to our destination. So our reason, our abilities, and our destination. It's rad what God wants to do in our lives. That's what he's doing. But he has goals that he wants to accomplish in the process of bringing us there. Okay, and those goals are extremely important. I just want you to listen to them. Here they are. Number one is that one of God's goals in bringing us to where we're going is that there be devotion, is that our relationship to him be secure and solid, that there be a, a living communication that exists between us and him, that that's a real thing, that there's devotion. Second, that there is development, that is that God isn't just in the process of, of putting us in a place, but he's developing something in us. He's developing Christ in us. He's developing holiness in us. He's developing vision and spiritual understanding and things that this world knows nothing of, but that don't come in a moment. It's not a light switch. It's a process. And God is developing those things. Number three, God is working depth. That is, that if he's a gardener, the strength of a garden is dependent upon the depth and the health of its root system. And to be rooted and grounded in God and rooted and grounded in his love, there's a process to that. It doesn't happen in a day. It doesn't happen in a moment, but he wants our roots to be strong. The next thing is that God is working discovery. And discovery is the part where we begin to discover why God put us on this earth. We begin to discover who we are in him, not the reflection of someone else that we wish we were or that we think we should be, but who God is making us to be, the discovery of the person and also the place that God has for us. And then finally, God's goal, number six, is that he wants distance. And this is important, distance. And what that means is this, is that God is not interested in getting us to a place so that we can get there and then fizzle out, flake out, or sin out. He wants us to get into a place where we're blessed and we understand why we're there, that we're living with him there, and then we thrive there lastingly. 
And that's important to God. It isn't about just saying, I did it, but it's about, can it remain? Fruit that remains, as John tells us in the end. Those are God's goals. Now, in order to accomplish those goals, we have a part to play. There is cooperation that happens on our end. Okay, what is our end of the deal? Number one is, those were D's, some of these are R's. These are all R's, actually. Number one is regeneration. Is that if you're not born again, and that's what regeneration means, to be regenerated, made new. If you're not saved, if you don't know him, then it's impossible. You will never, ever know why you exist. You will never know why you were made. Because the creator only who knows it and can reveal it to you is cut off from you, and you don't have access to that information or the informant. So regeneration is vital to know him. Number two, and this is hard, is resignation. The the, the word resignation, the first six letters or so, is resign. It means that you have to resign yourself to his will for your life. That's the part where you say, I trust you. (laughs) It's to resign from all of your desires and say to God that I trust you that you're going to bring me to where I need to be. Number three is resolve. Resolve is when after 10 years of being in a tunnel and being in the dark and you don't know why what's going on is going on, that you say, I still trust you even though I don't understand. That's resolve. And then number four is what happens is revelation, is that you begin to discover what God is revealing, what he's doing, but it's a, prog- it's a process, it's progressive, it happens along the way. Now, this requires, okay, listen, this requires faith in God, and here's why. Trust, here's why. Because when God is doing these things in you, and you're watching all of the people that are your same age, and things are happening in their life that aren't happening in your life, you can begin to panic, When you get to a certain point and you think to yourself, I should probably have some retirement by now. And I don't, (laughs) you know, and you can begin to think, where did I go wrong? Because I feel like I should by now. You need faith to trust. When you're watching and everybody else has a house and a family and they're secure and what they're going to do. And you're still wondering and still not there yet. And you think, where did I go wrong? Because I'm not where I feel like I should be. Everyone else is married and I'm still single. And so that's when you need faith to say, I still trust you, God, even though it's not happening the way that I think. So here's the faith that you need. You need faith to believe that God is, that he exists. Faith to believe that God cares. Faith to believe that God is committed to you, that you're not the exception to the rule, that God remembered everyone else and somehow he forgot you. You need faith to believe that God knows you better than you know you. And that's important because God does things that make sense for our future that don't make sense for our present. And and it takes someone who knows us better than we know ourselves to bring us to a place where we say, man, I never would have chosen this, but thank you, God, for it. It takes faith to believe that his decisions are based on where we're going, not where we are. All this to say is this, is that Christianity is not for the control freak, okay? (laughs) If you like to have control, then you're in the wrong faith. That's why we call him Lord, And every part of the thing is absolutely vital. Now, here's why I open the service tonight this way. is because over the next several weeks, as we get into this segment of 1 Samuel, 
we're going to see a contrast between two kings. We're going to see the lives of King Saul and then the life of King David. And we're going to see firsthand why the process of God is the way that it is. Because in one of those two men, the process is going to be incomplete. And so also then will be the man and short-lived will be his reign. In the other, the process will be fulfilled and we'll see a completely different outcome. And it answers the question for you and I as to why God does things the way that he does things. Because his goals, okay, of devotion and development and depth and discovery and destination and distance, you know, those goals that God has, we want to hit every one of them. And God wants us to hit every one of them. And so as we look at chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, we begin looking at King Saul and we see the one who skipped the process a little bit and got there a little bit too fast. It says this, chapter 9, verse 1. It says, now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Berachach, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice or chosen young man and a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he from his shoulders and upward. He was higher than any of the people. Now, here's what I want you to understand about King Saul first and foremost, is that he was known by God long before he ever came to be. God took full into full account his family history and where he was from before ever choosing him for the position that he would occupy one day. And I think that's important for you and I to understand because sometimes we, we think that God chose us by accident or that we kind of slipped in through the cracks, but that God doesn't really know us, doesn't really love us, or that God let us in, but there's a lot of things in our past history that we're going to have to kind of pay the price for. You know, the people that talk about generational curses and things like that. Listen, listen to me. Before God ever chose you, he knew you and he knew where you were from and he knew what your great grand uncle did with a voodoo witch doctor in some isolated place somewhere in Europe, okay? And God still chose you and he still looked at you and said, that's a good one, like he did with Saul. And isn't it interesting that God put his stamp of hope upon Saul's life, even though Saul wouldn't end well. He was chosen, he was goodly, he was choice. And that's the hope that God has for every single one of us. He doesn't look at us saying, ah, we'll see what they He looks at us with full assurance of hope. Well, watch this. It says, that this, it says in verse three, it says that the asses of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. That's a donkey for those of you that aren't familiar with King James language. And Kish said to Saul, his son, take now one of the servants with you and arise and go seek the asses. And he passed through Mount Ephraim and he passed through the land of Salisha, but they found them not. Then they passed through the land of Shalim and there they were not. And he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they found them not. And when they were come to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant that was with him, come and let us return, lest my father leave off caring for the asses and begin to take thought for us. Okay, the first thing that we notice about Saul at the very beginning of his life is that he had some real positive things going for them. Number one is that Saul was faithful in looking after the asses. 
Okay. Now I know that there's a variety of interpretations that you can uh, kind of attach to that and whatnot, but let me be clear. We're talking about stubborn, self-willed animals. All right. And, and Saul was faithful to look after something that seemed like maybe it was unimportant or purposeless. And I need you to understand that because there is something that every single human being and every single Christian will go through, whether you like it or not. And that is that you will spend some time in what seems to be a purposeless and meaningless job. Doing something that you say, why in the world is my time being wasted and the energy of my youth being wasted in doing something that as soon as I find these stupid donkeys, they're going to wander off again anyways. Why am I doing this? I'm just going to have to do it again. Listen to me. There is nothing wasted with God. And it's important that every one of us go through seasons where we do things that we hate because that is part of the development depth process. Before you can discover what you do do, you must discover what you don't do and what you don't do well. And it's just a part of it. There's a million things that God is doing this. It doesn't matter if it seems useless. It doesn't matter if it seems pointless. Do it anyway. That's the lesson. That's the message. Do it anyway, okay? Now, I say it because of this. Because in men especially, probably in all humanity, laziness is an inherent trait. It's something that is just in us, okay? From the time of the curse, when God said, by the sweat of your brow, this is, your, this is what's on you. You're going to cause the earth to bring forth. And Adam said, your desire is going to be your husband. His desire is going to be rule over you. And everything's been all crooked since then. And every man, especially, but probably every human, has had to overcome the issue of their own laziness. It's inherent in us. But listen to me. To embrace unpleasant work is like chemo to the cancer of lethargy. To force yourself to do something you hate and to be faithful to the season that you're called to do that is part of what drives laziness out of a human being. I love the verse. It's Genesis chapter 49, verse 27. It's when Jacob is prophesying over his sons. And he speaks to Benjamin, of whom Saul is a descendant. And he says this. He says, The Benjamin shall raven as a wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. He's talking prophetically about his life. He's saying that in the morning of his life, in the strength and the energy of his youth, he is going to raven at the prey. He's going to go after what it is that God has for him. He's going to attack life. He's not going to passively let it go by him or think that it's going to just happen to him. He's going to go get it. And the result of that is then at the evening of his life, he's going to divide the spoil. He's going to go get it when he can, and then he's going to have it when he can't. And that's an important thing that God wants for every one of us men, young men. Go get it. Don't think that it's just going to come to you. Overcome the laziness in your own life, okay? What you're doing right now that you hate may not be the thing that God made you for, but it may lead to the thing that God made you for. So go through it faithfully. Saul did. Well, watch verse 6. It says that he said to him, Behold now, there is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man, and all that he says surely comes to pass. 
So let's go there per adventure. He can show us our way that we should go. Then said Saul to his servant, but behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is spent in our vessels and there is not a present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again and said, behold, I have here at hand the fourth part of a shekel of silver that I will give to the man of God to tell us our way. Now before time in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, thus he spake, come, let us go to the seer. For he that is now called a prophet was before time called a seer. Then said Saul to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went unto the city where the man of God was. And as they went up the hill to the city, they found young maidens going out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? And they answered them and said, he is, behold, he is before you. Now make haste for he came today to the city for there's a sacrifice of the people today in the high place. As soon as you be come into the city, you shall straightway find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he does bless the sacrifice. And afterwards, they eat that were invited. Now, therefore, get you up, for about this time you will find him. Hurry up, be diligent. And they went up into the city, and when they were come into the city, behold, Samuel came out across from them to go up into the high place. Okay, the second thing that Saul has going for him is that he is spiritually curious, And that is that at a moment where he could just say, all right, we haven't found the donkeys. My dad's going to worry about us. Let's go home. He says, there's one more thing we could try. There is a prophet. We're in kind of the vicinity of where he will be in this season. So why don't we go and at least ask if he can give us some direction as to how we can complete our course, our task, what it is that we are being asked to do. And I find that to be commendable in Saul is that he gave place for God to reveal what only God knows. He was drawn in by God and his work. Now watch verse 15. It says, now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear a day before Saul came saying tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man out of the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be captain over my people Israel that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people because their cry is come unto me. Now you recall last study, the people asked for a king. Samuel's charter is to appoint and anoint that king. God is telling Samuel, I'm going to bring you the man who you will appoint now to be the king. Now here's what I want you to hear about Saul. And this is a a third thing that he has going for him is that Saul is in a position to be led by God. He's in a position to be led by God. Do you see how God is orchestrating? He has Samuel set up in place to offer a sacrifice. He has Saul in the neighborhood with an inquiring heart to go and hear what Samuel has to say. And God is moving the two things together in order to fulfill his purpose and his will. And so Saul, in being diligent in something that seemed meaningless, was actually being led by God to the place where what comes next would be revealed to him. And this is another reason, young men, why it is so important to be busy, to be moving, 
to be working because unemployment and idleness is probably one of the most dangerous positions you could ever find yourself in as a human being and as a man. I remember that there was a, um, a season, it was somewhere along the way, it was not, not long after we moved to the downstate region, I'm going back probably 17, 18 years at this point from now. And uh, I, I'd come into like a, kind of a situation where I found myself unemployed. And so I was talking on the phone with my brother and he said, Are you, have you filed for unemployment? And I, I said, no. I said, I, I don't think I want to do that. And he said, well, he goes, I would be the first person in line. He goes, because that's what you've been paying into. Yeah, all this time that you've been working, you pay into that. And he's like, that's money that you paid into. You should go and, and file for it. And so I was like, oh, all right, you know. So I was naive. I was young. I was dumb. I went to the unemployment office, and I had the paper in my hand. And I was standing in the line, okay, and I, I heard the Holy Spirit, not audibly, but clearly, say to me, you don't belong here. And it, and it, and it caught me. He said, you don't belong here. Leave now. And that was for me. I'm not saying that was universal for every child of God. He said that to me. He said, you don't belong here. Within two days, okay, there was an open door and I found myself working with a company that led to the greatest things that ever happened in my life. Things that unimaginably God worked through and used and added to me and did all the things. But listen, here's why I say it. It's because if I had gone to the end of that line and handed in that paper and received a check for what was at the time probably $402 a week, it would have taken all the pressure off and I would have just said, I've got time. And what happens when you say, I've got time, is that you go to sleep. And that's a dangerous place to be. It was one of the best things that God ever did for me to say, you don't belong here. Listen, when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, okay, he put an angel with a flaming sword so that they couldn't get to the money anymore. The bank was closed. They tried to get back in and they couldn't get back in. And there was no unemployment office. God said, this is seed, that's water, that's dirt. Go make something happen. And that's what they had to work with. And that was what God said to Adam. He said, go make something happen. And God empowered him to do it. And he did it. Okay. And Saul was in a place where he could be led because he wasn't sitting in idleness. It's so very important. Well, verse 17, it goes on. It says that when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, behold, the man whom I spoke to you of, this same shall reign over my people. Then Saul draw near to Samuel in the gate and said, tell me, I pray thee, where the seer's house is. And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me unto the high place, for you shall eat with me today and tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. And as for your asses that were lost three days ago, set not your mind on them for they are found and on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and on all your father's house? Now, just put yourself in Saul's shoes for just a moment. He goes up and he sees this prophet. This is Samuel. He's, this time he's a sage. He's got gray hair. And, you know, he's the man that everybody's looking at. And, and here's Saul standing in front of him. And Sam, Samuel's looking up at Saul because he's so tall. And, so just, and Samuel, this mighty prophet, looks up at him and says, are you not he upon whom all the desire of Israel rests? Go on before me to the high place. What's Saul thinking? He's like, what? is this guy crazy? I mean, I've heard about these prophets, but man, talk about flattery. 
In verse 21, Saul answered and said, am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak so to me? He's like, get real. This, you don't know who you're talking to. And Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the parlor and made them sit in the chiefest place among them that were bidden, which were about 30 persons. And Samuel said unto the cook, bring the portion which I gave you, of which I said unto you, set it by you or set it aside. And the cook took up the shoulder and that which was upon it, and he set it before Saul. And Samuel said, behold, that which is left, set it before thee and eat. For unto this time has it been kept for you since I said I have invited the people. He's got to be thinking, is this a dream? Like what is going on here? So Saul did eat with Samuel that day. And when they were come down from the high place into the city, Samuel communed with Saul upon the top of the house. And they arose early and it came to pass about the spring of the day that Samuel called Saul to the top of the house saying up that I may send you away. And Saul arose and they went out both of them, he and Samuel abroad. So they go walking from the place. And as they were going down to the end of the city, Samuel said to Saul, bid the servant pass on before us. And he passed on, but stand thou still a while that I may show you the word of God. Here comes the revelation chapter 10, verse one. Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him and said, is it not because the Lord has anointed you to be captain or king over his inheritance. Now pause right there with me for just a moment and take in what just happened to Saul in that moment. I mean, this is like hitting the lottery, right? I mean, all of a sudden you're looking for donkeys and then the next day you're working for, you know, Elon Musk or something, you know, like how in the, what, what is going on here? But I want you to notice that Samuel made some huge errors in the way that he dealt with Saul Here's, here's what they are. Number one is you tell a young man that he is basically the answer to everyone's problems. All right, that's a big mistake. Don't do that. Okay, parents, don't look at your kids at night and say, the whole world's been waiting for you. You're the answer to all the needs that everyone has ever had. That sows horrible seeds into the ego of a young man. And certainly it did for Saul. Another thing he did is that he caused him to sit in the chiefest place amongst the feast. And this was an error, okay? What did Jesus say? He said, when you're bidden to a feast, don't seek the highest place, seek the lowest place. All right, the place of leadership is a place of servanthood in the kingdom of God, not a place of domineering and domination. It's addictive and it's dangerous. And it was Saul's first taste of attention to sitting in the big chair right away. Number three is that he gives him the best portion of what was there. He sets the tone, the taste in Saul that if you're leading, then you get the best and everyone else gets the leftovers. Number four, he honored him as though he had done something when as yet he hadn't. There was no royalty in his character or in his resume yet. It was all in what God said he was going to do. And yet Samuel honored him as though it was already done. And then finally, he tells him outrightly where he is headed. That is, you are going to be the king of Israel. 
Now, the only reason I even notice that is because when David will be tapped at a future time, Samuel does not repeat these errors, especially that one. He anoints him and says, have a nice day. <laughs> you know, See you later. <laughs> have fun in your roller coaster and the debate. You know, Enjoy it. You know, it's it's going to be fun. Listen, this is not a good thing, okay, what Samuel is doing to Saul right here. Because literally, the seeds that are being sown by Samuel in this first interaction are going to bear fruit that's going to be beyond what Saul can control or conceive of. What you deposit in the ground is different than what comes up out of it. All right, and this is feeding his ego in such a way that it will corrupt him absolutely uh, later on in, it, in his life. Listen, leadership is more of a calling than it is a qualification. God calls people to lead that are never qualified to do so. Because who you're comparing yourself with is God and Jesus. And nobody measures up to that. Okay, so leadership is a calling. And so it requires humility to realize that I'm not above anybody else. I'm not better than anyone else. I've just been called and I will be equipped by God to fulfill a role for his name that one day I will then hand over to him and I will take my seat amongst everyone else. That's what leadership is supposed to be. Now, Saul is then or told after this by Samuel that he will experience these signs. Watch verse 2 of chapter 10. He says, When you are departed from me today, then you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the border of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you that the asses which you went to seek are found, and lo, your father has left the care of the asses and sorrows for you, saying, What shall I do for my son? Then you shall go on forward from there and you will come to the plain of Tabor and there will meet you three men going up to God to Bethel, one carrying three kids or goats and another carrying three loaves of bread and another carrying a bottle of wine. And they will salute you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall then receive from their hands. After that, you will come to the hill of God where is the garrison of the Philistines? And it will come to pass when you are come there to the city that you shall meet a company of prophets coming down from the high place with a psaltery and a tabret and a pipe and a harp, musical instruments before them, and they will prophesy. And the spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will prophesy with them and shall be turned into another man. Now watch verse seven, it's important. He says, and let it be that when these signs are come to you, that you do as occasion serve you. Do what is in your instinct at that point. For God is with you. And then you shall go down, verse 8, before me to Gilgal. And behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you shall do. Okay, so Samuel gives Saul four signs that are to serve as a confirmation of the proclamation that Sam, Sam, Saul will one day be the king or that he is the king. And here are the signs. Number one, by Rachel's tomb, he will meet a couple of men that will say the donkeys are found. 
Sign number two, he's going to run into three men. They're going to have three goats, three loaves of bread, a bottle of wine, and they're going to give two loaves to Saul, and he's to take it from them. Then number three, he's going to come to a company of prophets, a band, a worship team. They're all going to have their instruments. When they see Saul, they're going to open up their guitar cases. They're going to put on a little worship service. They're going to prophesy. Saul's going to prophesy, which means that they're going to worship together. And then Saul is going to supernaturally experience God in a way that he never has. And he will be given an instinct telling him what he is to do. And then the fourth sign is a test. It won't happen till sometime in the future. When he comes to Gilgal and he doesn't know what to do, he's told to wait seven days until Samuel comes. And then when Samuel offers offerings, God will then reveal to Saul through Samuel what he is to do. Now, this is amazing, isn't it? I mean, God's going to do all this stuff. He's going to give him all these signs. You say, why in the world does God give Saul these signs? I believe because God wants to speak through them. Okay, what is the purpose of a sign? A sign gives information, right? <laughs> That's what a sign is for. There's no reason for a sign if it's not telling you something or leading you somewhere. So what is God trying to communicate to Saul through these signs? Number one, okay, is that he's got to sit and wait by Rachel's tomb or at least come in contact with Rachel's tomb where he is then told that the donkeys have been found. Why Rachel's tomb? Why Rachel's sepulcher? Because Rachel was a woman who gave her life for the furtherance of the nation. And that is to be the ministry of a king or a leader. A leader that's appointed by God will lay down his life for the sake of furthering the nation. I believe that's what God wanted Saul to, to, to understand. The second sign is that a man carrying three loaves of bread would give two of them to Saul. And the idea is, the sign is, that if you are going to lead, if you're going to have something, you give away twice as much as you keep for yourself. That's leadership. The third sign, he's to worship with the band of traveling prophets. And in worshiping God, he will instinctively know what to do next. God is communicating to him that if you want to know what to do, the pathway into discovering my will is through worship, not through self-will, not through your intellect. If you don't know what to do, worship God, and God will fill you with the instinct what to do next. And then the fourth sign, of course, is the test, as we have said. And so God giving him these signs, these tests, he comes through, he gives him a new heart. And then in verse 13, it says that when he made an end of prophesying, or I'm sorry, we're back, uh, we're back in verse 9. It says, and so it was that when he turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all those signs came to pass that day, all but the last one. And when they came thither to the hill, behold, a company of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. And it came to pass when all that knew him before time saw that, Behold, he prophesied among the prophets. Then the people said one to another, What is this that came unto Saul, son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And one of the same place answered and said, But who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? In other words, the change in Saul's life was so great that it was noticed by everyone. 
And when he had made an end of prophesying, he came to the high place and Saul's uncle said unto him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said to seek the asses. And when we saw that they were nowhere, we came to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, tell me, I pray thee, what Samuel said to you. And Saul said unto his uncle, he told us plainly that the asses were found, but the matter of the kingdom whereof Samuel spake, he told him not. And Samuel called the people together unto the Lord to Mizpah. And he said unto the children of Israel, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all kingdoms and of them that oppressed you. And you have this day rejected your God who himself saved you out of all your adversities and your tribulations. And you have said unto him, nay, but set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was taken. And when he caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was taken. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken, chosen. And when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore, they inquired of the Lord further, if the man should yet come thither, And the Lord answered, behold, he has hid himself among the stuff. And so Saul, in a moment of shyness, hides, not wanting to be in the limelight yet. And they ran and fetched him thence. And when he stood among the people, he was higher than any of the people from his shoulders and upward. And Samuel said to all the people, see him whom the Lord has chosen, that there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, God save the king. Then Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. And Saul also went home to Gibeah and there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. But the children of Belial or the children of the devil said, how shall this man save us? And they despised him and they brought him no presents, but he held his peace. Interesting thing that happens in this passage is that you see Saul almost showing a display of humility. Like, I don't know if I want to do this. I'm going to sit. I'm going to go and hide amongst the stuff. I don't want the attention, the whole thing. I think that Saul at this point is legitimately struggling with something that is common to all of us. I call it imposter syndrome. That is, I don't feel important. I don't feel profitable. I don't feel qualified to be in the position that I'm in. And so I don't know if I can handle it. I don't want people to find out that I'm really not what they're expecting me to be. Am I the only one that can relate to that? (laughs) Because I I think I struggle with imposter syndrome every single day of my life. You know, when, when, when I married Georgia, I felt like I I had imposter syndrome, like she's going to figure it out. She's the prom queen. I was a geek, a nerd. I mean, you could make a movie out of it, you know? And it's like any day now, she's going to (laughs) realize that I am not that great of a a man, you know, uh, a human being, and and this whole thing's going to fall apart. Everything I've ever done, jobs I've had, the ministry that I'm in, never, ever, ever feel sufficient to do or to be or to operate within what those things are. And Saul had a a, a place in that. And it's an interesting thing that he had uh, in this. We're going to pause there. I wanted to get through chapter 12 tonight as we haven't even started 11 yet. I'm certain that that is not uh, going to happen and I don't want to rush through it (laughs) for your sake and for mine. 
But what we see in Saul is we see, we see a man who is being elevated way too quickly. He's being advanced way too quickly in the process of God of developing depth and character and substance in the man and, 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 and making his roots go deep and bringing him through, through a, a revelation of discovery into the place. By circumventing all of that, a monster is literally being created. God does his work in the dark. That's where God likes to work. When you read the Genesis story of creation, it says that darkness covered the face of the deep, but the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. There was a movement of God that could not be seen. It was under the surface. It was undetectable. He was brooding there. He was creating life. He was energizing the creation, the planet, and he was preparing all of its systems before any of it was seen. None of it was known. And then out of that darkness, God spoke and he said, let there be light. God created in the darkness. God, the gardener has ordained that a seed that is dead, a seed that is without substance, without form, that gives no visible evidence of what it will be when it is. He puts it in the ground. He buries it under the earth in a place of darkness. And it's there that life comes into the seed. We know not how. And that the chaff of it is broken off and that the first sprig of a root, the first thing that comes out is a root, what absorbs, not what is seen, where it then begins to absorb life. And it isn't for a while that then after the fact, it comes out at the surface. When God forms a baby in its mother's womb, it's in darkness. The Bible says in Psalm 139, it says that he knit me together in my mother's womb, but it's in a place where no one can see. He's forming, he's fitting, he's fashioning, he's molding, he's dividing cells, he's inserting a personality, he's downloading traits and putting callings and desires and, 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 and loves and passions and affections and weaknesses and he's sewing all of that together knowing full well what he's making and nobody can see it. It's in darkness. The thing itself doesn't know. Even the mother that will bear it doesn't know. She just knows that something is happening underneath the surface. And so it is with every one of us that is called by God. He does his work in the darkness. He's developing us in darkness. He's deepening us in darkness. He's setting our roots in the time and in the place that we can't see and that we don't know. And we're saying, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why does this feel like this? Why did you abandon me? Why did I give my life to this? But in the time of his wisdom, and when the character and the substance of the being can last with longevity in the place that he has prepared us for, it is then that he begins to reveal the reason. Why am I here? Where am I going? But if we take the shortcut, if we say, I, I don't want to wait. I need to know now. I need, I need this thing to get, get moving, get on the road. Come on, God, let's get the show on the road. If you take the shortcut, then the depth isn't there. The character isn't there. The development, the gifts, the talents, the things that were needed on the side, those things aren't there. They're incomplete. And as we move through the life of Saul, we're going to see what happens in that instance. 
Jesus was tempted to take the shortcut. Satan came and said, hey, just quick one, just a quick one. Just bow down, worship me, and all this will be yours. Everything that you came to die on a cross to get, I have the power to give it to you now. And you don't have to go to a cross. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to be rejected. You don't have to bleed. You could just bow quick, and I'll give it all to you. Mission accomplished. Shortcut. And Jesus said no, because he knew that there is no crown without first carrying a cross. Eve took a shortcut. Hey, you know that fruit that God said don't eat of it? You could just eat it and you'll be done. You'll be like God. You don't have to go through the process of being sanctified. You don't have to go through the process of having self-will beaten out of you through your errors and your sins. You could just eat of this fruit. Just, you could do it right now. You could have it now. Lottery. Done. She said, yeah. Hand it over. There is no shortcut that brings you to lasting fruitfulness. You might be here tonight and you're wondering why God does it have to be this way? It has to be this way. His ways, the Bible says, are as high as the heavens above our ways and they're past finding out. He develops in the darkness. Our place and our call is to be in relationship with him, to be resigned. Not my will, but your will be done. To have resolve that when it seems like and feels like I'm abandoned, that I'm going to hold on to hope knowing that I'm not. And in God's time, there will be revelation. Amen? Let's stand together. Father, we thank you tonight that you put these things before us. We are so grateful for God, though you don't tell us everything, you tell us enough. And we see in the life of this man, Saul, the reason why it's so important, oh God, that you do things the way that you do. So tonight, Father, wherever we are, we know that you know. And we ask you, God, that what it is that we need right now, that you would supply it by your spirit. That whether we need patience, maybe we need repentance, or maybe, God, we need to back up a few steps because we took the shortcut. Or maybe, God, we need to put our trust back in you again because we've taken it back upon ourselves. We ask, Lord, that you would forgive us for all those things, that you would renew our hope and help us to see that, God, you know, you see, you care, you know us better than we know ourselves, and that you're worthy, God, that we should bend a knee only to you. So would you help us? Would you fill us? Would you continue your work in us? For, God, we say tonight, we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.